This episode of CougarCast is brought to you by WaveformSleep.com. Go check out Waveform Sleep. It's a new mattress. It has speakers inside of it. Woo! <laughs> you, uh, I don't know, Ric Flair. He's in my heart, always. Just like uh, the BYU football team, which we'll talk about in just a second. Waveform Sleep is a new mattress that has speakers inside of it. And one of the things that it does is it connects via Bluetooth and you can play your music through it. You can play your movies through it. And what happens is it reacts and rumbles to the sound, sending resonant sound waves through your mattress right in to your back. Ooh, it's fantastic. I sleep on a waveform mattress and it has transformed what we do in order to fall asleep. We turn on a thunderstorm, and it has created a sleep routine for us, and it has been absolutely fantastic. So go check them out, waveformsleep.com. Go sign up for that email list. You'll be notified when the product is available, and also, you know, deals, discounts, everything else. So go check them out, waveformsleep.com. And now... It's time for Cougar Cast, where we talk about the 2010s on the offensive side of the ball. So sit back, relax, put on your nostalgia cap, and let's go deep on, which is something BYU did not do very much. <laughs> Greetings! My name is Key Shirts. And this is CougarCast. Thank you very much for tuning in to this special episode as we commemorate the 2010s. We're going to take a look at the quarterbacks, the running backs, the wide receivers, tight ends, and the offensive linemen who mattered the most, what performances we remember the most, things that will never happen again, who was the player of the decade. We're going to talk about all of that. In this episode, so hope you enjoy. Not long ago, maybe a couple years back, I was road tripping with my wife and three daughters. They're all younger than six years old at this time. Southern California was the destination. Beach time. Being mostly cooped up by Utah's winter had us chasing the sun. And it had been a long drive. Nearing its conclusion, we were about eight hours in. We were driving down I-15 towards Los Angeles when we had just exited a canyon. A giant DOT digital board read, High Winds Advisory, Use Caution. A couple miles further, another digital traffic board updated with, Three semis blown over southbound, major delays expected. When everything eventually came to a standstill, I was sitting 10 feet from a sign that told me that I was stuck one mile away from an exit toward Fontana, California. Once we had settled in, I'd put the car in park. My children began asking a bunch of panic questions about our bad scenario. I tuned it out. Mom's got this. I stared at the word Fontana as I leaned my chair back to settle in with a smile on my face, and I remember thinking, 
I bet Jamal ran through here. That's why the winds were so high. Maybe one of those semis tried to tackle Jamal and took the brunt of the collision. That would make sense. See, the joy of remembering Jamal Williams made that nearly three-hour delay bearable. Here's how. I used him as an example. I thought, what would Jamal do in this spot? He'd be dancing or playing catch like he used to do before games for the Cougars. He'd play catch with fans in the stands. He always seemed concerned with spreading smiles, increasing the positivity. So I thought, all right, well, we're stuck. So I did my best to do just that. Dance, play catch, spread smiles, increase positivity. I mean, we're on vacation, so let's have fun. So we did it. Turned up the music, we danced for a while. We played games, we made up games. We even pulled out the Frisbee and threw them around to some other poor saps stuck on I-15, just like us. Amazingly, this is the only thing my family remembers about our getaway. Being stuck in the car on I-15. Sun beating down on us. It was this thing that should have almost definitely been a negative, And in the end, it was a positive. And it wouldn't have ever happened if not for Jamal Williams' example. So, I thank him. Never been able to do that. It'd be kind of like a long story to share with him and other people would want selfies and things like this. So, I'm guessing that he's like feeling it in some way. I hope he does. But, you know, Jamal's example to me, I would have never taken note of it if it weren't for his on-field dominance. And trust me, as you'll recall, Jamal Williams was outstanding. Lights out. 100% the best player of the 2010s for BYU football on the offensive side of the ball. Let's go over a few things about Jamal Williams that I hope you haven't forgotten, but I'm here to refresh you. Look, here's his resume. Jamal Williams finished his BYU career with 3,901 yards. It's the most in school history. He had 35 rushing touchdowns. That's third most in school history. In 2016, which was Jamal's absolute opus of a season, he had the third most productive season uh, by a BYU running back in, in history. He had 1,375 yards and 12 touchdowns, and this is despite missing three games due to injury. Had he played those three games, he was on pace to pass Luke Staley's 2001 Doak Walker award-winning season. Think about that. I mean, that's crazy. Now, Staley only played 11 games in 2001, but Jamal had a chance to even approach what Staley did in 2001, which just seems impossible, but it absolutely happened. He was on his way. He missed three games. The setback put him behind Staley. And he was never really going to catch Staley's single-season 24 touchdowns, but... 12 touchdowns, 1,375 yards. That is a fantastic season, especially when you consider he played 10 out of 13 games. Uh, Here's some fun ones. Jamal never returned a kickoff or a punt in his career, and he only had 60 catches out of the backfield. It's one of the sneaky things that's uh, maybe kind of 
a hole in Jamal's game. He wasn't very good at pass catching. Didn't do it very much. BYU didn't look to him to do it all that often. Why would you? You could just hand it off to him, and he'd he'd get you a couple yards at, at worst. But he had 60 catches out of the backfield. He never returned a kickoff, never turned a punt, and he's still fifth all-time in all-purpose yards. What? What? Williams is the only BYU Cougar in history to have two seasons with 12 touchdowns or more. He's the only one. There's a lot of things he's the only guy to ever do. One of my favorite things to think about when it came to Jamal Williams was his ball security. I know, not flashy. And that's kind of the interesting thing with Jamal is in combo with his swag and his, you know, effervescence and and big smile and all that stuff. The guy was just a workhorse too. Just incredibly reliable. He did all the little things right. So while, yeah, he'd have big plays here or there, he also just, he knew how to be a workhorse and he knew how to not hurt you. 786 touches in his career and he only had three fumbles. Incredible. It's an incredible number. All right, let's take a look at it. If Jamal Williams had 15 carries or more, the Cougars were 20 and 7. If he had 20 carries or more, the Cougars were 9 and 2. On the flip side, if Jamal Williams only carried the football 14 times or less, the Cougars went 6 and 9. If you take out FCS opponents, the Cougars only went 3 and 9. So, holy cow. If he carries the ball a lot, over 15 times, you're going to go 20 and 7. If he carries it less than 15 times, 3 and 9 against FBS opponents. Whew. Which, of course, begs the question how on earth were there 15 games in Jamal Williams' career where he didn't get 15 handoffs? Ugh. That's wild. Jamal Williams holds the single game rushing record. And he also holds the single game rushing touchdown record. And both of them happened on the same night. September 30th versus versus Toledo. Uh, sorry, in 2016. September 30th, 2016 versus Toledo. This is the game against Logan Woodside, who was probably the scariest person we played this last decade. He also had Kareem Hunt who's also just a scary person. (laughs) So Jamal Williams, best game. Okay. 30 carries, 287 yards. That's a school record. That's 9.5 yards per carry. He had five touchdowns in this game. That's also a school record, Uh, including an electric 62 yard touchdown run. That was an awesome run. He actually broke a couple tackles on his way to taking it to the house. And the thing is, is this wasn't just piling on Toledo for the sake of it. The Cougars needed every single yard that night. Not much else was kind of clicking in a massive way. And honestly, that's a lot of a lot of these big games we're going to talk about. 
they needed every single thing out of out of Jamal. They needed all five touchdowns. They needed all of those 287 yards as he kissed Eldon Forte's long, long, long standing record goodbye. Red Allman would go on to hit a field goal at the buzzer to give BYU a 55-53 win. But that was Jamal Williams' best game in terms of production uh, during his career. Here's some other best game contenders. Let's see if you'll remember this. Back in 2013, Jamal's a sophomore. And uh, it actually coincides, the story of this game, uh, coincides with one of the most frustrating halves of football this past decade, at least for me as a fan. We were playing the Nevada Wolfpack in Reno. And at halftime, BYU was losing 7 nothing against a terrible Wolfpack team. They'd finish 4-8. and eight. The Cougars on the road... Seven to nothing. We're going to pass for less than 100 yards. We're going to pass for just above, I think it was 5.1 yards per attempt passing in that game. And crazy enough, the Cougars only had five first downs in the first half. Jamal Williams accounted for three of them on his three and only three carries in the first half. Williams had three rushes for 31 yards. I went back and checked my Twitter feed. I don't tweet a ton. I'm not addicted to the platform. I have the good sense to know that you can only get in trouble on Twitter. Not everybody has that. And the thing is, is I counted that 15 times in that game against Nevada... I tweeted something like, give the ball to Jamal, or what on earth are they doing? It's so simple. They can't do anything else except for Jamal. Just give the ball to Jamal and you'll win. Thankfully, they did. In the second half, 30 seconds into it, Jamal busted open a 63-yard touchdown. Got the Cougars on the board, tied the game up, just coming straight out of the locker room. Williams would go on to have 188 yards rushing on 12 carries just in the second half alone. He finished the game with 14.6 yards per carry. (laughs) That's wild. 15 rushes for 219 yards. As Jamal willed BYU to a 28-23 win against Nevada. It's the second game that popped into my head after the Toledo game. And it was his second uh, best performance in terms of yardage. Number three. It's actually Jamal's final game as a Cougar. It's in the Las Vegas Bowl against Wyoming. Jamal had 210 yards rushing on 26 carries. Now, this Las Vegas Bowl against Wyoming is largely remembered for having played against Josh Allen it's remembered for having terrible weather, and it's really easy to kind of remember Tanner Mangum's struggles passing the football. But the thing that should get more attention is the fact that one of the signature bowl game performances in BYU football history happened that night. Now, I get that it's not Kyle Van Noy in the Poinsettia Bowl or Jim McMahon, or Bosco, or Young in the Holiday Bowl. 
But it is probably right just next after all that. So having the fifth best bowl game performance in school history is pretty special. I mean, 210 rushing yards in a bowl game. The Cougars only had 312 yards of total offense. Jamal accounted for two-thirds of everything they did that night, including a 36-yard touchdown run that put the game out of reach. But really, this game was more of a workhorse performance. I mean, he was the only thing that worked that night. You remember the helplessness of the Kyle Van Noy poinsettia bowl game? Similar helplessness, except for Jamal. He made the Cowboys work for each and every tackle on his way to 8.1 yards per carry, and he is literally the only reason the Y took home the bowl win that night, at least on the offensive side of the ball. It was the perfect cap for his opus of a senior season in 2016. And again, the only blemish of that 2016 season is his three-game injury, which robbed us of his chase of some crazy history. But these three games that I just outlined are the first, sixth, and 11th single-game rushing performances in Cougar history. Which reminds me, Jamal Williams is the only BYU player in history with eight games of 150 yards rushing or more. Not Arviunga. Not Curtis Brown, not Luke Staley, not Jamal Willis, not Pete Van Valkenburg. None of them. Not Lake Hamuli, right? Just Jamal Williams. Eight games of 150 yards rushing or more. And in the same vein, he's also the only BYU football player to have three games of 200 yards rushing or more. Jamal Williams is also the only BYU player in history to rush for over 400 yards over a two-game stretch. He's also the only player to rush over 600 yards in a three-game stretch. And he joined Luke Staley as the only people that have had a six-game stretch with over 800 yards. Oh, and by the way, unlike Staley, Jamal Williams did it against the nation's seventh most difficult strength of schedule. He didn't do it against the gamut of Air Force and Colorado State. He did it against West Virginia and Michigan State and Utah and Arizona. (laughs) The point is, look, Jamal was the man. He is easily the starting running back on the 2010s All-Decade team, and it isn't even close. I mean, it's not close at all. It's silly to even think that anybody else could be considered here. Squally Canada is probably second. If you want a backup, I'll give you a backup. Fine. After that, it gets kind of bleak, kind of quick. J.J. Luigi, Michael Elisa, Adam Hine, Paul Lasique, Algernon Brown, Lopini Katoa. Woof. Especially when compared to Jamal. It's kind of a hard standard when you're going against what might be the best running back in the history of of BYU football. So, no shots fired. Just a lot of respect for number 21. So, yeah. Not only is Jamal the starting running back on the 2010s All-Decade team, 
he also gets my award for the best offensive player of the decade. And while I think all the stats that I just gave you do him a lot of justice, I can't help but to point out that there was nothing more fun than watching number 21 gear up six yards behind the line of scrimmage and deliver the hammer and finish his run. Down after down, game after game, year after year. It just felt like he was punishing opposing defenses. He wasn't going to be stuffed. It was like his resolve was to never go down easily, and he didn't. He played with a, a chip. It was like he was going to prove to his teammates, his coaches, his opponents, and all the fans that handing the ball off to him was always a good, positive play call. And in a decade where the Cougars suffered a lot of inconsistent passing, Jamal was indisputably the most reliable player BYU had. Give him the rock and he'll drag three defenders across the goal line with a huge smile on his face and a swaggy end zone celebration. So yeah, Jamal, player of the decade on the offensive side of the ball. And certainly the starting running back for the Cougars for the 2010s. Loved watching Jamal. Great combination of fun and also hard hat. I, he had it all, truly. What a fantastic player. On March 27, 1964, the Good Friday earthquake occurred. It was at 5.36 p.m. local time in Anchorage, Alaska. To say it was a doozy would be an understatement. It was a 9.2 magnitude earthquake, the second largest in recorded world history, and the quake lasted 4 minutes and 38 seconds. 600 miles of fault line ruptured along the Kenai Peninsula, causing a movement of 60 feet vertically. Four hours and six minutes after the earthquake, a tsunami reached the shores of Crescent City, a small, beautiful harbor city on the California side of the nearby Oregon border. The 20-foot wave had come, and after having drawn out the harbor nearly dry, hit and devastated this community. Insurance adjusters would later find that Crescent City received more damage from the tsunami on a block-by-block -block basis than Anchorage did from the initial earthquake. And that event shaped the community of Crescent City, a town I've been to. A town where, according to a study by USC, experiences tsunami conditions about once every two years. The schools conduct tsunami drills where not totally sure what they tell the kids to do. They tell them just to run up the steep hill there and get to the high ground, practice their backstroke. Not sure. Something, probably something like that. The roads all around Crescent City have warning signs, making sure that you know that there are some 
big, terrifying waves that can come at any moment. Despite this, Crescent City, California just carries on. There's an ethos of, yeah, something bad is going to happen here, has happened here, will go ahead and happen again. But why would I let that stop me? That idea that why would I let that stop me? Without question, this was the attitude exhibited by Crescent City native and the best wide receiver of the 2010s, Cody Hoffman. Cody Hoffman dominated in high school. He won two conference championships, racked up unbelievable numbers. He was six foot four, 215 pounds, physical, dominant on the football field. Went under-recruited. Del Norte High School was just off the map, I guess. Even though he was winning state or league titles over and over. No big deal for Hoffman. Carry on. Why would I let that stop me? He enrolls at BYU. And that's just what I think when it comes to Cody Hoffman. When I picture him playing football for the Y... Here's the image that pops into my mind, the skill that I think about. It was his ability to locate, adjust, high point the football, and come down with the pigskin, despite having a DB draped all over him. It was amazing. Over and over and over again, he had to catch footballs this way. Hoffman just had a way to go grab a 50-50 ball. And Cody's skills and physicality turn these 50-50 balls into 90-10 balls. So, the football's going to be hard to catch on this throw. Why would I let that stop me? I'll go over his statistics and accolades and his resume in a minute. But before I do... I think it's vital to consider the quarterbacks that passed to Hoffman because that's certainly a part of his legacy. Cody Hoffman caught touchdown passes from Jake Heaps, Riley Nelson, James Lark, and Taysom Hill. Not exactly a Mount Rushmore of passing talent. Not the best group of four when it comes to QBU. And that that group of players, that explains exactly why Hoffman needed to go get 50-50 balls. It was. It was the most impressive quality of Hoffman's play. It was his unflappable way of adjusting his body to go from a scenario where he was sprinting wide open and had beaten his man, which is why the pass was thrown to him in the first place, to then having to slow up, outleap, and win a battle to bring in the underthrown, wobbly, wounded duck. And he was able to do so with his impressive, as I mentioned before, six foot four, 215-pound frame. And maybe even more impressive was his desire to compete and to go get the ball in that scenario. His want to. So those are the guys I have to throw the ball to me, huh? Why should I let that stop me? 
Quick sidebar here. Imagine if this Crescent City, California ethos had permeated the BYU football team after Cody Hoffman's time. Like, say, for instance, huh, they're going to play intramurals in the indoor practice facility, and I can't use it right now. But I wanted to get more throws in and work on my timing with the receivers. Why should I let that stop me? But it didn't. Instead, it was more like, oh, intramurals in the indoor practice facility, I guess... (laughs) I guess BYU is stopping me and wants me to fail as they clearly don't have my back and don't have football as a priority. (laughs) Back to Cody Hoffman. Here's the stuff that you should know. Hoffman is the all-time leading receiver in career receptions with 260. The all-time leading receiver for receiving yards with 1,248 career yards. He's the all-time leading receiver in total games with 100 yards or more receiving. He has 18 (laughs) 100-yard receiving games. Amazing. Hoffman's the all-time leader in all-purpose yards with 5,015. He's the only BYU player to eclipse 5,000 all-purpose yards during his career. Hoffman has the record for the most receiving touchdowns in a single game. He had five at New Mexico State, and he caught them all from James Lark. He's the only receiver in BYU history to have five TD catches in one game. Cody Hoffman is the all-time leading receiver in touchdown catches. He made 33 trips to the end zone. During 2011, Hoffman was asked to be the primary kickoff return man. He did it from time to time his junior and senior year. But it was his sophomore year that he was mostly relied on. And of course, he set the record for this too. He racked up 879 return yards, the most in a single season ever. The point is, as you're well aware, Cody Hoffman was outstanding. He maximized the most of his scenario as he possibly could. He found a way to make his teammates and team better. He won football games for BYU and was able to figure out ways to impact and make a play unlike any other receiver we saw all decade. And really, unlike... Almost any receiver BYU's ever had. That quality of, I'm going to take this scenario and I'm going to make it a positive, led to him having an unbelievable, unbelievable career at BYU. 18.2 yards per reception. Every single time he caught the football, 18.2 yards. On average. Incredible. So hats off to Cody Hoffman. Our starting and star number one wide receiver for the 2010s BYU football team. On the other side, the other wide receiver for the 2010s, it's pretty easy. Statistically, he outpaces everybody else. And... 
he had probably the most memorable catch of the decade. Mitch Matthews was six foot six, two hundred and fifteen pounds. Possession receivers, both sides, baby. <laughs> Uh, eh, Hoffman could go down. By the way, he could burn it a little bit. He was he was quicker downfield. Uh, but anyway, Mitch Matthews, six foot six, two hundred fifteen pounds, probably the best dunker to come on campus in the last decade. <laughs> um, look, Mitch Matthews always had um a physicality to him that made you wonder that he should be something, you know, really big. And yet he, he kind of dwelt in a little bit of obscurity. He only got into two football games as a freshman, his sophomore season. He was largely unheard of until about halfway through when he exploded for a five catch, 112 yard receiving explosion for three touchdowns against the Aggies as we won in Logan. He then continued to contribute from there on out. He had a couple absolute monster games. In 2014, he had a game with Christian Stewart, where Stewart connected with him 16 times for 182 yards and two touchdowns. Another massive, massive explosion. Again, the moment that BYU fans are going to remember Mitch Matthews the most for is, of course, the first of the two Mangum miracles, uh, which I guess that's what we'll call him. <laughs> Mitch Matthews catching the football on a Hail Mary to beat Nebraska in Lincoln. Uh, obviously, one of the, the big storied moments in the career of Mitch Matthews. It was the catch of the decade a touchdown at the buzzer on a Hail Mary to win the game. It was an amazing thing. He went on to have a, a really productive senior year, uh, you know, had another huge performance. He liked playing in Logan, uh, had another huge performance, six catches for 158 yards and two touchdowns. Matthews, over the course of his career, had 20 four receiving touchdowns. He eclipsed 2,000 yards receiving, and he brought in 152 balls. Good, really productive career at BYU. Uh, One that, you know, developed over time. The one thing you have to bring up when it comes to Mitch Matthews, you just kind of have to note it. I would say that as you take a look at Mitch Matthews, one of the things that I'm going to remember about him is I used to joke with Tosh and other friends of mine that he would lead the country in catches out of bounds. It just seemed like he struggled to be physical. And, you know, despite his production, it was just one of those things. It was the difference between Cody Hoffman and Mitch Matthews was that ability to go and compete, hold your ground, stay in bounds, um, win that battle and and come down with the football, despite him having an even taller, longer, bigger frame than, than Cody Hoffman. Hoffman had the innate ability to win that battle and come down with the football. Mitch Matthews won his fair share, to be sure. But it also seemed like he was a little bit um, passive 
and and, and lost just as many as he won uh, from time to time. And so certainly an explosive, very good player. That's not a massive knock on him. It's just something that pops into the mind, and we got to keep it real here. So I, I think that Mitch Matthews was excellent. You should feel really good about having him on the other side as a wideout. You can do a lot of damage with him on the field. He helps you win football games. Um, but those are the th- that's the drawback of having a player like like Mitch Matthews be on your all-decade team. <laughs> but every team is going to, and every player has has certain weaknesses. Mitch Matthews found a way to mostly play to his strengths. And again, as I read with the numbers, it's clear he had a tremendous run while he was at BYU. So Mitch Matthews, our second wide receiver on the 2010 All-Decade team. And, you know, if you want it, we can name a slot receiver. Personally, I'm going to go with Jordan Leslie. Not going to go into detail on, on it. There's a few candidates that you could take a look at. Jordan Leslie is the one for me. Um, I'll read you a couple other names of players who maybe I guess honorable mentions. Jordan Leslie, Mitchell Jurgens, Colby Pearson, Devon Blackman, Nick Kurtz, and Aleva Hifo. Those are probably who's in the mix here. There's a lot of other guys, you know, people might like uh, Micah Simon. Jonah Trinaman had uh, a, a lot of ability. He was very fast, <laughs> but never seemed to either get open or at least get a ball near him enough, or he didn't have that quality to go get the ball. Uh, you know, Ross Apo had a, a good, uh, decent, uh, really good as a freshman and kind of tailed off career. McKay Jacobson. Uh, so lots of different names for me. The main candidates for that slot receiver spot are going to be, or that third receiver, Jordan Leslie, Mitchell Jurgens, Colby Pearson, Devon Blackman, Nick Kurtz, Aleva Hifo. For me, I'll take Jordan Leslie. I really thought that Jordan Leslie came in as a graduate transfer from UTEP, and I thought he was really, really good. I thought that he did amazing things to support uh, that BYU team on the back half of that year. He and Christian Stewart were roommates, and they they developed an unbelievable synergy uh, during that eight games, where where Stewart almost passed for three three thousand yards during an eight game period, and, and most of that was because he had a, a, a the leader of the receiving core that year was was Jordan Leslie. He was eating him alive out there. So, um, Jordan Leslie would be uh, the guy that I'd take as my third receiver, though reasonable minds could disagree. Okay, it's time for a brief discussion about offensive linemen. Not a great decade in general for offensive line. So important. You know, look, the Cougars offense year after year after year kind of struggled. Adjusted for pace and strength of schedule, right? This is using Brian Fremau's FEI. Offensive rank. Here's how the Cougars did. 2010, 68th. 11, 41st. 12th, 55th. 13th, 
57, despite being one of the what, like 16th in total offense that year, according to uh, adjusted for schedule and pace and everything else, 57th. 2014, 43rd. 2015, the best offense of the decade. The 2015 Tanner Mangum is a freshman offense. 38th. 2016, 64th, despite Jamal Williams' opus season. By the way, that 2012 was Cody Hoffman's best season, 55th. 2016, sorry, 64th. The 2017 offense, the worst offense of the 2010s, otherwise known as Tanner Mangum's junior season. (laughs) 118th. Yikes. Ty Detmer's fired. 2018, 71st. 2019, it's going to end up being 63rd. Woof. Only twice did, or excuse me, three times BYU had a team that was in the top 50. (laughs) Always right around the middle of the pack, and only once truly awful. I think a lot of that had to do with the offensive line and its ability to provide time to open holes and to do kind of all the stuff that goes unnoticed. And unfortunately, we're just going to keep that theme. I don't have long epilogues or stories about offensive linemen, except for the one that came to my mind first is probably the best offensive line of this decade. Tejan Karoma. Karoma played center. I remember going to a meeting of BYU fans, Cougar Club meeting, where we had an opportunity to hear Bronco men and all describe and talk about the new recruiting class that he brought in. And the one person he just kept gushing about was Tejan Karoma. And then we watched his film. And oh, yeah. Tejan was undersized for a center, just a little short, but the thing that he had going for him was absolute ferocity <laughs> on the offensive line. You remember, he got in trouble for throwing a couple punches in, two, in a couple different games. The other thing that he had going was he's incredibly strong. But the thing that I'll never forget, and I never saw him do it at BYU, but in his recruiting videotape, there's actually plays where Karoma is getting pulled on a sweep to be the lead blocker as a center. Snap the football, snap your head up, find, locate where you are. It's usually all you can do before the defensive tackle has destroyed your life. Karoma, and hold your ground, right? Karoma, in these videos in high school, was snapping the football, getting up, putting a hand on the guy across from him, releasing from him, running away, getting out in front of his running back, and then demolishing people. (laughs) It's incredible. College is a little bit different game, but that spoke to a lot of what Tejan could do as an athlete. He was able to recover and get out in front of that running back. I, I still remember it. It's still one of the most amazing clips I've ever seen 
for any offensive lineman, uh, period, as it relates to, you know, a recruiting video or anything like that. Amazing. Tejon went on to play for four years. He was a starter right out the gate, and he was very solid, very good for BYU his entire run. The other lineman that seemed like a no-doubter to me is Matt Reynolds. The left tackle had an incredible career. Again, started so many games at BYU and, you know, was unbelievably steady and successful as, you know, a left tackle. He had a moment that, of course, I think you'll remember, it was back in the Armed Forces Bowl in 2011. The Cougars... Very few time running out in the second quarter, about halftime. They're down 14-3 to to Tulsa, struggling in the Armed Forces Bowl. And a blitz is coming on the outside. Riley Nelson is the quarterback. And it all starts with a really, really bad play by Matt Reynolds. Reynolds goes for a cut block on the blitzing outside linebacker. He misses the cut block. Upon missing the cut block, his helmet pops off. Matt Reynolds then gets up, sprints back, gets to the corner blitz, who's now running after and now scrambling Riley Nelson, who's making his way towards the sideline, trying to buy some more time. Reynolds now sprinting. Tremendous athleticism. No helmet on. (laughs) Jarring to see on the football field. No helmet on. Runs through and absolutely levels and demolishes this quarterback. Freeing up Riley Nelson to plant his left foot just before the sideline and throw a dangerous across the middle of the field pass. (laughs) You know, a Riley Nelson-esque pass. Right across the middle of the field, a playground play. He finds Cody Hoffman. Hoffman turns, dives for the end zone, and gets in. Touchdown BYU, 7 on the board, 14-10 to 10 going into halftime, and it changes that game, a game that we win right at the end. We never win that game if not for Matt Reynolds and his no-helmet block. An iconic play for a lineman, and those just don't come around all that often. And the good news is it came for a lineman that was pretty darn good. All right, three other spots on the offensive line. James MP is going to earn his way into this conversation. He's had two good years for BYU. He's also a center. We're going to ignore positions. We're just going to pick our five best linemen and go. So, James MP, congratulations. Welcome to the 2010s. You may make the 2020s. Number two, Jordan Matthews to the squad and Brady Christensen. The other people I considered just for the sake of reporting Deandre Wesley, though I leave him off because I remember him (laughs) with a lot of false starts, but the big man certainly had the look of a fantastic offensive lineman and has been able to find his way in a few practice squads in the NFL. Tuni Knuch and Kean Norman. Also were considered. Both were pretty good. And they both kind of fought for the same spot, felt like. (laughs) So, 
you know, the two of them, there was no real distinction between one and the other, and yet there wasn't that much flexibility for them to play other spots other than guard. But we'll leave them out. So there you go. The the offensive line for the 2010s. Tejan Karoma, Matt Reynolds, Brady Christensen, James Empey, and Riker Matthews. Inevitability is one of the weirder phenomenon in life that you can experience. Inevitability. So much of what I've experienced in my life is uncertain. So it's disarming when something is certain to happen. There are two different versions of inevitability that I want to talk about. I'll describe them as hard inevitability and soft inevitability. First, hard inevitability is when something is truly inescapable. Not to get too heavy here, but a textbook example of hard inevitability is death. It's coming. For sure. No one knows when exactly, and that uncertainty about something so definite is unsettling. See, it's kind of a weird thing there, right? Because... There's a certain death coming, but uncertain about when it's going to happen. It's unsettling. It's also unsettling when something is certain to happen. There's a lot of things that are unsettling, I guess. (laughs) In my world, at least. But, actually, you know what? Don't give me any of that silliness of not fearing death. Like, who are you? Are you Alex Honnold? Right? You're going to free solo El Capitan? Calm down, okay? And don't tell me that you don't fear the deaths of others either. You do. Somewhere not far beneath that shale pretending to be granite facade is someone who instinctively avoids detests and, under certain circumstances, fears, yes, fears, death. Which is okay. Fear of death is a hard inevitability. You can be comfortable with it. You can be prepared for it and be live your life in a way to maybe not be so afraid of it that it controls your actions through the day. But certainly, it's something that you try actively to avoid. Okay, can we agree on that? And we certainly try that as well for other people. Like, near-death experiences are absolutely terrible, right? Your heart gets pumping. It's a story for later on, but it is not... I would have rather not, right? So, despite it being quite clear that I have some thoughts on hard inevitability, uh, and I guess in particular death, (laughs) uh, this isn't really the inevitability I'm interested in talking about. Soft inevitability is. Soft inevitability is when something feels inescapable, but isn't truly escapable. Soft inevitability is where your intuition just locks in. Your experience, prudence, and gut combined in a way where you feel almost like something has to be. Soft inevitability is something that happens a lot in sports, and it's one of the kind of amazing phenomenon of watching sports. It's a huge reason why I like it. I like feeling like you can kind of predict and feel what's going to happen next just because of the juju in the air. There's just things like that that happen 
Like, for instance, when Zach Wilson threw the pick six to Francis Bernard this year, soft inevitability. Soft inevitability became hard inevitability when D'Angelo Mandel had the the late hit on a uh, a third and 18 play, or third and 28, excuse me, play. That was it. But anyway, uh, I digress. When when Zach Wilson threw the pick six to Francis Bernard this year, soft inevitability. Um, you felt like it wasn't going to hold together anymore, right? Or like when Taysom Hill threw the pick six to Utah on his first pass in 2016. Or when Tanner Mangum threw a pick six on his opening drive in 2015. Or when Jake Heaps fumbled on the snap and tried to make a play and Utah scored a touchdown on that. Or actually just any time we play Utah. All right, they're in our heads. Of course, it can go the other way. It can go the other way. In a positive light, you can feel this soft inevitability. And one of those times, Matt Bushman. On Bushman's signing day, his video screamed production at the Division One level. It did. You put the video in and it actually went... Production! Okay, it didn't. But it felt like that. This podcast, CougarCast, had Andrew George on uh, to talk about Matt Bushman, uh, a player who he helped evaluate just a week after the Cougar signing day. Um, He helped uh, evaluate Matt Bushman when he was on the Cougars coaching staff. And here's what he had to say about the new recruit. And what I really like about Matt is he... He is, he's a big kid, uh, but he played receiver in high school. Kind of, kind of, uh, um, Does that remind you of anyone? Well, that's, that's how Dennis was in high school, right? So he was a receiver. And I think they're different style players. And, and I mean, we'll, we'll see if, if he uh, kind of evolves in, into what we're hoping he will evolve into. But uh, Dennis was a, a receiver in high school, a good athlete who, who could run. But he was just a, he was a skinny guy. He was probably 190 pounds in high school. And no one was really projecting him as a, uh, you know, he wasn't a receiver. And then he kind of fell under the radar to be a tight end because he never played the position. Uh, but I think Matt kind of fits that mold. I don't know if he'll ever have to put his hand in the ground, but he's, he's extremely athletic. He had a baseball scholarship also to BYU. Uh, he, has, he has great hands. He's got great size. Uh, and he's someone who, who can fit that mold of a, a, a big guy, a big target that can catch the ball away from his body and, and really uh, create mismatches over the middle of the field. So I, I think uh, there's, there's a lot of potential with that.
I'm throwing it out there right now that I think Bushman is our next great tight end we have, which I don't like saying because we're not going to see him for two years. Two years, but he's going to be the next great tight end that we have. Yeah, and the thing is, is despite that soft inevitability we felt, took a while for Bushman to finally get here, served a mission, had a redshirt year. Now he's been in for the 2017, 18, and 19 seasons. He's a junior. And the one thing that you can say from Matt Bushman is is that it's arguable and maybe even the case that he's been BYU's best offensive player for the past three seasons. That's not saying a great deal, but he's he's certainly in the mix of, of that, okay? Bushman, as a freshman, 49 catches, 520 yards. As a sophomore, 29 catches for 511 yards. So his average yards per catch went up by 7 yards per. This year, with a bowl game to come, 41 catches, 597 yards. And touchdown totals, 3 as a freshman, 2 as a sophomore, 4 this year as a junior. See, the thing is, though, is when you take a look at those numbers, there's one thing you have to applaud. One thing you have to really put in Matt Bushman's corner, and it's this. He's consistent. Since 2000, here's the list of players, okay, who've been able to have three seasons or more of 500 yards receiving. Cody Hoffman, he's the only one to have four, by the way. Cody Hoffman was the man. Austin Colley would have had four had he played his senior year. Dennis Pitta had three. And Matt Bushman. That's it. Matt Bushman, Cody Hoffman, Austin Colley, and Dennis Pitta. That's the good part of this. The bad part of this is that while you can count on Matt Bushman, and while he's been pretty productive, there have been several games watching him where you... considered and wondered where is he and when is he going to get involved and I know that as a receiver or based on certain you know formations and honestly he's the guy that other teams are trying to take away that makes it a little tough sometimes but he does disappear the other thing with Matt Bushman that I would say is that I feel like he's yet to have a monster year he, he's yet to kind of put together a really big-time signature season. And to me, I feel like to be, you know, one of the all-time greats, one of the top, 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 right, that's what, what you'd need. Now, again, I just told you the elite companies in, but again, when you look at Cody Hoffman's stats, as a freshman, he had 500 yards. As a, as a senior, he had 800. As a sophomore, he had 900. As a junior, he had 1,300 almost. Okay, Matt Bushman is just barely in 500 two years, and he's just below 600. I'll get to the 600-yard mark. Okay, But you look at the two seasons from Johnny Harleen. 850 yards, 930 yards. Okay, Really big totals, right? Dennis Pitta, 800 yards, 800 yards, 1,000 yards. Okay, Now he's the all-timer, so okay. But better than most tight ends. There's no question about that. He he belongs among the list of, of, of really good tight ends to come through BYU. And he is the next one. And BYU hadn't had one really come through. I mean, we had... I mean, here, here's the tight end group that we had to pick out of 
for this this uh, all-decade team. You ready? Here were the candidates. Marcus Matthews, Kaneakua Friel, Devin Mahina, Turin Hauk, Morona Ilalu, Pututau. <laughs> I had the pause just like everyone. I'm so used to hearing it with the pause. Tanner Baldery and Dallin Holker, who, who had one year, looked pretty good. Uh, he's serving a mission right now. Maybe next decade. It's clearly Matt Bushman. And there isn't really a, a, a fantastic second choice. I, I don't know how you feel about MLP. Uh, Taryn Houck had a really good senior year. Uh, he was effective that year in 2015. Uh, Devin Mahina always had the the potential. I, I think my second favorite is probably Kane Akua Friel, right? But the, the thing that I take a look at is I just look at it and I go, well, these seasons that are being put in by Matt Bushman are what you're getting out of Talon Shumway this year. Talon Shumway has 40 catches for 500 yards and four touchdowns. Well, that's a, that's Matt Bushman's best year. It's right in line. <laughs> so, I, you know, really good player. When we watch his games, they always say he's got NFL written all over him. His Obviously, physically and everything else, when you see Matt Bushman, by the way, when I saw him step into the box on the baseball field, it was incredible. Uh, the six foot five, two hundred and forty five pound Paul Bunyan, the bat looked so small in his hands. It was wild. Um, so yeah, no, obviously tremendous athlete, big kid, played receiver as you heard, and has translated very well at this level. Clearly the best at his position this decade, and it's not even close. And, and, and so, and then beyond that, he's like, he's on the verge of, of of being like this, like really, really big time player. But he benefits from playing at a time when when things haven't been very good offensively, and things have been a a, a real struggle. And like the the idea that he was like the only bright spot in that awful twenty seventeen offense. That really helps Matt Bushman. Like he was clearly the best player in, in that 2017 year, and he had a stretch in 2018 where he wasn't being utilized by Ty Detmer because I don't know. I guess he was happy with having the 117th best offense in America that year <laughs> until uh, the second half when when Bushman got to play a lot more. Uh, and then you know this year, obviously, he's been at the the center of a, a lot of things and, and has been involved in the trick plays. Um, they try to use him in a lot of different ways, ways that you just don't see tight ends get used except for like Dennis Pitta. So there's a lot of like, you know, on screen passes and things like this. So there's a lot of there, there. It's just, I kind of wish that you got a monster Matt Bushman year. I'd really like to see a gigantic monster Matt Bushman year, an 800-yard, 900-yard with eight touchdown year. He's capable of it. He has the ability to do it. He hasn't done it yet. Um, And so that is what we're left wanting from Matt Bushman. He's got 2020 to give it to us. Uh, I think he has the ability. We'll see if he gets help from his quarterbacks in that way uh, and and maybe can find a way to kind of get – even further than that conversation, but Bushman's probably going to finish. I mean, unless injury happens, he's going to have four seasons with 500 yards receiving 
And like I said, that would put him with Cody Hoffman of players that have been able to do that since the year 2000. That's just unbelievable, right? Just, I really appreciate and, you know, a kid that shows up and, and, and comes to play. You can't knock consistency. It's the hardest thing to do in all of sports is to be consistent. And Matt Bushman, though I've said there's games where he disappears, in aggregate, over the course of a season, really, really consistent, really has all all this opportunity to go on. But of course he was good. You just look at his film. You look at his measurables. You look at the speed that he runs with on the field. Of course Matt Bushman was going to be good. The question is, is how good? I think he could be even better. And it's exciting to think about for 2020. But congratulations to Matt Bushman. He is the tight end for the 2010 All-Decade Team. Okay, and for the final section of the 2010s, BYU offense for the whole decade discussion and setting the all-decade team. Of course, we come to the quarterbacks. The theme for BYU quarterbacks is potential. That's the theme for the 2010s as it relates to BYU quarterbacks at Quarterback U. The fulfilling of potential is absolutely thrilling. And we've discussed circumstances of that earlier in this podcast. And the lack of fulfillment of potential leads to a lot of what ifs and humming and hawing and what the heck happens. And a lot of ways, that's what that latter half, that's what happened with BYU quarterbacks. In the previous episode recapping the 2010s, where I did kind of an overview of the whole decade, I recalled the recruitment of Jake Heaps and Tanner Mangum, both of whom were the top-ranked high school quarterback in America. And they actually chose to come to BYU. Heaps and Mangum were set to be enrolled at different times with no overlap, which in theory would mean that BYU was meant to have eight great years of elite quarterbacking by the top talent of their recruiting class. That didn't happen. In fact, BYU didn't even get eight consecutive games of great quarterbacking. (laughs) Instead, BYU rolled out 14 different quarterbacks this decade. Roll call. Jake Heaps, Riley Nelson, James Lark, Taysom Hill, Ammon Olsen, Christian Stewart, McCoy Hill, Tanner Mangum, Bo Hodge, Coy Detmer Jr., Joe Critchlow, Zach Wilson, Jaron Hall, and Baylor Romney. (laughs) That's pretty drastic when potentially BYU was set for eight of the ten seasons this decade. Obviously, it didn't play out that way. An old football adage was cited a lot this last decade, and if you're a BYU football fan, you definitely heard it. You're acquainted The most popular player on the football team is the backup quarterback. And while I understand the principle of the cliche, it isn't really true. At least, it isn't always true. The only time people quote that, 
when they say that the starting, you know, the only the only time that ever comes up is when the starting quarterback isn't playing very good football. If the starting quarterback is awesome, then that's the most popular player on the team. <laughs> if the starting quarterback is so-so or bad even, then the backup quarterback is the most popular player on the team. So the fact that we heard that phrase so much tells you how the starting quarterbacks did this year <laughs> and through the decade. Okay, look, there were two reasons that BYU quarterbacks were replaced by backups during the 2010s. Performance-based coaches' decisions or injury. First, let's talk about performance-based coaches' decisions. 11 of the 14 quarterbacks were benched either directly or indirectly. Most notably was Jake Heaps being benched in favor of Riley Nelson and Tanner Mangum being benched in favor of Zach Wilson. Then several backups resumed, resumed their roles as QB2 or QB3 even as soon as the starter became healthy again and lost their spot. Or, or the other option is they lost their spot in spring ball or at fall camp. So right off the bat, 11 of the all-decade quarterbacks that we've had at BYU have a massive ding against their resume, okay? 11 of them weren't even playing well enough to continue to play. They were either benched in favor of uh, the backup or benched as soon as the person in front was healthy again. Here are the three quarterbacks that were never benched for performance-based coaches' decision reasons. Taysom Hill, Christian Stewart, and Zach Wilson. Christian Stewart took over and kept, the, kept his spot for eight games, and then he graduated. Stewart was so much fun to watch over those eight games as a starter. He only went four and four, but he was fun. It was sort of a unique and special circumstance. That's why he was never replaced. If he had another year of eligibility, first of all, I think he would have been awesome. It would have been fun if he'd been around again. But I would have, I would have gone for more Christian Stewart. I don't know about you. The answer should be yes. But he almost definitely would have been benched in favor of Taysom Hill. If he had another year of eligibility and they were both coming back, Taysom Hill was going to take the job back. So Christian Stewart also would have been benched for a performance-based coach's decision reason. Zach Wilson has yet to be benched since he took over the starting spot as a freshman. Although Zach Wilson's eight-win, seven-loss record to this point have people wondering. And his sophomore season of 7.2 adjusted yards per attempt and uh, a 134.2 quarterback rating are doing enough to make people wonder about Jaron Hall and Baylor Romney, both of whom showed well for themselves, in particular Baylor Romney, who had the Cougars' best win of the season in his first start, giving the 19th-ranked Boise State Broncos their one loss in a 12-1 season. But for now... Zach Wilson hasn't been benched, but statistically, he's right on the edge. You'll see what I mean in just a minute. Taysom Hill had the special sauce for avoiding performance-based coaches' decision benchings. It had everything to do with his ability to run the football, 
a quality of Taysen's skill set that was simply breathtaking at times was his ability to rush. Dating back as far as BYU football game logs go on the internet, 1970, that you can look at to determine whether or not a player is going to be benched or even deserves to be benched. The magic numbers are a 130 quarterback rating and are higher than those you play on. If you are below that, it's time to see the backup. Again, magic numbers, 130 quarterback rating and seven yards per attempt. Zach Wilson is currently at a 134.2 quarterback rating and a 7.2 yards per attempt. So play on from now, but beware. And also the concerns of Cougar fans warranted right on the line. This is why these magic numbers are magic. Every single time, every single time, a BYU starting quarterback consistently has a quarterback rating lower than 130, they are eventually benched. Working alongside that, every single time a BYU starting quarterback dips below seven yards per attempt, the bench is in their future. If you have both of those, it's over. Every single time. Oh, wait, no, excuse me. Every single time except for one exception. Taysom Hill. In seasons where Taysom Hill played at least five games, here are his quarterback rating and yards per attempt numbers. In 2013 as a sophomore. He had a 118.1 quarterback rating and 6.1 yards per attempt. In 2014, this was Taysom Hill's best passing season and probably the season that got away. That's probably the one where the the season-ending injury stuff that we'll talk more about in a minute, probably the most heartbreaking. A 141 passer rating with a 7.4 yards per attempt. Good enough to play on. And in 2016, having come back from his Liz Frank injury to his foot, Taysom had a 116.9 quarterback rating and a 5.6 yards per attempt. Lower than Jake Heaps when he was benched. Over Taysom Hill's career, he was a 121.4 quarterback rating with a 6.1 yards per attempt both numbers below the magic number and yet there he was playing all sorts of games I think he played and featured in as the starting quarterback in 33 games and he was never benched everyone else that would have performed like that benched here look Of the nine BYU quarterbacks that started at least three games during the 2010s, Taysom ranks sixth in quarterback rating and yards per attempt as a combination as you kind of measure those out. The only quarterbacks that Taysom measured higher than in terms of passing were Joe Critchlow, Bo Hodge, and Jake Heaps. Notably, he trails behind 
Tanner Mangum and Christian Stewart in these categories. Both at home were Taysom Hill's backups. So, hmm. So, there was more than ample reason statistically to have benched Taysom Hill. Every other player that posted numbers as poor as his ended up being benched. Every other player was benched. But, like I said before, it was never about passing with Taysom Hill. It was about his rushing ability. Of course, the other reason for being benched at some point is injury. This decade, being a drummer for Spinal Tap was a safer gig than being the board, <laughs> the quarterback for BYU during during this decade. Look, remember how I said it wasn't a stellar decade for offensive linemen? I mean, the injuries piled up. Six of the 11 quarterbacks that started a game for BYU during this decade. Cougars. Four season-ending injuries in BYU history, certainly. And I've yet to hear or find out about another player sustaining four season-ending injuries in their career at any other university. Tanner Mangum, Riley Nelson, Jaron Hall, and Bo Hodge all had to miss time not once but two times due to injury but none of them had a season ending injury and Zach Wilson broke his thumb so it was ugly in terms of health in the 2010s the culmination of performance and health resulted in a lot of change under center BYU only had one season this decade where a single quarterback started every single game. Happened once in 10 seasons. Only had stability under center once. Ironically, it was in 2013, and the quarterback was Taysom Hill. The only season he avoided a season-ending injury. So, yeah, one season in 10, that's a far cry from... Eight seasons with the number one high school quarterback leading the Cougars. And this is where the investigation of this concept of potential can be really agonizing. All the elements were in place with Jake Heaps and Tanner Mangum, and and yet they fizzled out. The potential was better than the reality. The best example of the theme of potential is, without question, Taysom Hill a player that was, quote, faster than wide receivers and stronger than linemen, end of quote. He had the nickname Thor-terback, Thorderback, due to his superhuman athletic abilities and his qualities as a quarterback being kind of different. Again, superhuman, the Thor-terback. As such, Taysom always had a level of potential that was outrageous. The ceiling on what he could be was beyond perhaps any other figure in Cougar sports history. This potential was always, always driven by the wild aspects of his athleticism. In the end, the irony is that what may be the most gifted athlete to walk the campus of BYU had a fatal flaw, and that was his body. This irony was found out for two reasons. First, the obvious reason, Taysom Hill had an inability to be healthy. Four season-ending injuries is no joke. 
you can't improve or gain experience when you aren't on the field. In fact, you have to rehab to catch up to where you were. And second, Taysom's wild athleticism was used by Hill as a crutch at times. Look, the matter of the fact is is that Taysom didn't trust his arm, which was pragmatic given his passing production. For instance, Taysom threw more interceptions than any quarterback for BYU this decade. But this led, this lack of faith in his arm led Taysom to tuck in the football and, and go. His belief in his athleticism led him to underutilize his teammates. It was almost reading to fans like a lack of trust for his teammates. If there was eight yards to gain and five yards in the clear in front of him, Taysom would just take off and try to sort out how to beat the defenders in front of him and try to get the final three yards to get the first. A lot of the time he did it. But he would default to that rather than trust the playmaking abilities of his receivers and try to throw it. Again, maybe that had to do more with the trust that he had in his arm talent. or. But at the same time, it seemed like there was a lot of times where Taysom, instead of handing it off on the read option, he'd pull it back and keep it himself, trusting his ability to go and gather yards more than the running back. Now, many have argued that Taysom did this out of necessity. He simply just didn't have much to work with. The Cougars needed him to take on all that load. But that simply just isn't true. Did you realize that the one season Taysom didn't have a season-ending injury, the 2013 season, he had Jamal Williams in the backfield and Cody Hoffman out wide? Hill literally had the two most productive weapons in BYU history at his disposal. That 2013 season was loaded with talent. This was Cody Hoffman's senior year. With Taysom Hill pulling the trigger. And Hoffman had his third worst season overall. And the least amount of touchdowns of any season as a Cougar. And that's his senior year. The same goes for Jamal Williams concerning his touchdown totals. But look, Taysom Hill destroyed in 2013. He ate. Hill led the team in rush attempts, rushing yards, and rushing touchdowns. He actually had the fourth most rushing yards in a single season in BYU history. That season actually is second all-time in Cougar history for the most carries in a single season. He rushed 246 times. Combine that with the 38 sacks that he suffered, and certainly a lot of quarterback hurries, and Taysom sustained well over 300 hits of damage in 2013. And he didn't need to. He could have looked to Hoffman. He could have looked to Jamal to carry more of the load. Instead, he, he took the damage. As a quick aside, 
It's important to note that sack rates increased by more than 10% with Hill as the quarterback than any of his backups with the same offensive lines. So when Hill would have one of his season-ending injuries, his backup would come in, and suddenly the offensive line looked more capable of blocking. Sack rates decreased by 10% with the backup. So with the potential of Hill's dynamic running, you also had the... A marked increase in negative plays. It's worth noting. Taysom's play style didn't really facilitate the success of his teammates. I guess that's what I'm trying to get at. Receivers were less productive. Same goes for his running backs. And offensive lines took a lot of blame. They look worse for the wear due to increased sack numbers. Except for those offensive lines were opening up holes and letting people run. So, hmm. Everything sort of locked into Taysom Hill, having to answer all the questions when he was under center. And impressively, most of the time he had the ability to singularly play like a maniac to help the Y achieve more victories than losses. I mean, Hill won a lot. I think he was 22 and 10. But Hill's approach to playing the quarterback position and kind of the skill set that he brought, it also made defending the, the Cougars a simpler challenge. And I know that seems hard to believe because Taysom Hill was an incredible, an incredible athlete, but they were one dimensional with him. Opposing teams could just stack the box and challenge Hill to make downfield throws, which he couldn't do. Taysom Hill only completed 6% of his downfield throws as a senior. If he threw the ball over 20 yards downfield, 6% completion percentage. This crowding around the ball at the line of scrimmage also made life tough around the red zone. Red zone conversion was particularly difficult for the Y with Taysom Hill under center. BYU's red zone touchdown rate in 2013, this is with Jamal Williams and Cody Hoffman and Taysom Hill, was 48.2%. That was 115th nationally. The 2014 team had a 63% touchdown rate with Taysom Hill during his first four and a half games before he had another season-ending injury. That touchdown rate would increase to 75.7% with Christian Stewart. Went up 12 points. Hill's senior year, the red zone touchdown rate dipped. It was actually the lowest or second lowest, excuse me, of his career, 58.8%, which was 74th nationally. So all of this is to say, I always wish that Taysom would have figured out how to use his tremendous physical gifts and football talents in a way that would perhaps take away from his own production and allow others to maximize their abilities. I, I wish he trusted others as much as he trusted himself this would have helped them get away from 
kind of the one-dimensional problem that the Cougars had with Taysom Hill on the field. And instead of playing like a superhero, and instead of being the Thor quarterback, I feel like BYU needed him to just be a quarterback. And do what he needed to do in order to help the team. For four consecutive years, BYU fans would wonder if this was the year that Taysom Hill would do what was best for the team and start sliding to stay healthy. The answer was no after one season-ending injury. Still no after two. And amazingly, Taysom still wasn't sliding after three season-ending injuries. Then, another season-ending injury, number four, happened when Taysom unsuccessfully attempted a hurdle on a defensive back and landed awkwardly. The Cougars needed him. He could have done so much more. But instead, his desire to not slide and try to win a couple extra in the name of a couple extra yards every single time uh, ended up costing the Cougars, I think, a lot. Because we lost more time with Taysom Hill on the field. More time to develop his potential. More time trying to get him back and rehab and get to the spot that we were at before he got injured. We were... It's the rat race. We could never grow. We could only get to the point that we were at before. I always felt like that Taysom Hill had the potential and the skill to be that rising tide that lifted all boats. And had he done so, he would have taken the Cougars to higher and further than any other quarterback during this decade. Instead, eight wins. In terms of win totals, that's not the highest. In fact, you can only really judge his win totals on one season because he never stayed healthy. But had he had this approach, this rising tide lifting all boats approach, I think that had he gone that route, from a legacy standpoint, it would have been the way for him to come closest to his realized potential. It's kind of backwards, right? But by sliding more and by utilizing more of his teammates, he would have probably ended up with better numbers and a greater impact and more wins, and BYU would have been able to go even further. Instead, Taysom's time as a Cougar was more like a bullet train everyone else was just trying to hold on to where the destination was never reachable because the bridge was out. The bullet train was going to run fast. It was going to run hard. And everyone else was just on a passenger. Just get on. Try to keep up. The problem was, is as it approached the unfinished bridge, everyone just kept looking at it and felt like, well, geez, you know, it's maybe, just maybe, it could fly across the gorge. I mean, it seemed potentially feasible. Until, of course, the terrible moment would come, and the train did not fly, and it was out of commission. That just seemed like his approach to the game, to kind of singularly go out. And, and like, 
I haven't seen a player like Taysom Hill in the sense of literally being the guy that did everything for in, in the ultimate team sport, literally being the guy that like stood out as playing most individual individualistically, I feel like. And I feel like as a result of that style of play, you know, it resulted instead of realized possess potential, it ended up being Taysom Hill's college career being a, a, a story of unfulfilled potential because he went with that approach. But, you know, potential. What ifs? And, you know, having uh, having Taysom Hill have his entire BYU run kind of be a story of unfulfilled potential sort of makes him the perfect avatar for what it means to be the quarterback for the BYU football team for the 2010s. To be the all-decade quarterback for the 2010s, yeah, kind of makes some sense. Let's take a look at Taysom's top three performances from his career. Number three, BYU 37, Boise State 20. This is in 2013. Hill completed 27 for 41 passes for 339 yards and three touchdowns while rushing for 76 yards on 18 tough carries and a touchdown. Again, think about the workload there. Woo. October 19th, 2013. Houston, Texas. BYU wins by one point. BYU 47, Houston 46. This was a, a performance that truly was sort of like a an individual going out and grabbing it. Okay? It was an up and down day. It was kind of a quintessential Taysom game at least at the kind of the highest level of it. Um, up and down day for Taysom. He actually threw three interceptions and suffered 10 sacks. And in a game that was an absolute shootout, it was Hill who was the top gunslinger. He threw for 29 uh, of 44 and a career-high 417 yards and four touchdowns. This included a game winner on a perfect throw to Skylar Ridley with just over a minute left in the game. And Hill was also a massive workhorse for the Cougars in this one. He ran the ball 34 times. 34 times he ran the football for 194 yards. And, of course, the most famous top performance. You knew it had to be Texas, right? I take the first one that happened in Provo as a more impressive performance from Taysom. September 7th, 2013. BYU 40, Texas 21. Uh, so, if you remember, in this one, and this is the point, Taysom led the BYU rushing attack, okay? 259 yards for Taysom Hill on the day. 259 yards, okay? Woo! Taysom did that on an insane 15.2 yards per carry, on 17 carries. Wow. Wow, 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 wow. And he did it with three rushing touchdowns on the day. Uh, 
And, you know, it wasn't Hill's finest day passing the football. Uh, the Cougars, 9 for 26. Or, uh, yeah, Hill went 9 for 26 for 129 yards and a pick. But then again, that didn't seem that important because he put on one of the more ridiculous displays running the football that the sport had ever seen. 15.2 yards per carry on 17 carries. Wow. Impressive. So with Taysom, obviously, obviously, the reason he was on the field, the reason that he did the things that he did on the football field were because he was one of the more dynamic people with the football in his hands with a little open field. He was absolutely breathtaking. Of course, you remember the Longhorn Leap the following year in Texas. Uh, and what he did to finish runs was impressive. Again, he probably should have slid. Probably would have been better for him long term. Would have been better for BYU long term. But uh, at the end of the day, he made the choice that he did to play the way that he did. Of course, Taysom's legacy has actually grown and improved because uh, he's gone on to the NFL and had uh, a good career there and has kind of actually unlocked this thing that we're talking about, this this rising tide lifting all boats, doing what he needed to do where he needs to do it to have an effect on the on the football game. It all started with him taking a role on special teams for the Saints. Then he started doing some wildcat, some trick plays, some going from the slot, some running. He's just kind of doing it all right now for the Saints. Uh, and he has kind of found a way to contribute. And honestly, is changing the way a lot of NFL GMs are thinking about using backup quarterbacks. And it's kind of an interesting thing. I, I just wanted to read... Um, something that I wrote on Vanquish the Foe, which uh, is a really good take and really bad take. Here we go. On February 16th, uh, 2016, this was the day that Taysom Hill announced that he'd be returning to BYU for a senior season. Uh, here's what I wrote about Taysom versus Tanner in the quarterback battle on Vanquish the Foe. Here we go. Quote, given Taysom Hill's problems with health, which are only made more problematic by his approach to the gridiron, his best role to help the Cougars is to be the backup. Just not in the traditional sense. Don't have Hill be the wearing a baseball cap, a headset, and holding a clipboard kind of backup. Have him be a situational spe specialist. Allow me to introduce you to Situational Taysom. Hill was a punishing rusher and a decent passer. There are situations which allow Hill to highlight his rushing strength, such as goal line and third and short. And in these instances, Taysom playing as a wildcat could be a nightmare for opponents. Taysom's numbers on third down and short are good, even through the air. This becomes a valuable asset for the Cougars. Give Hill between 5 and 10 snaps per game in certain favorable situations, limiting his contact while also setting up countless trick play formations, gaining more first downs and scoring more touchdowns, all of which leads to game-planning nightmares for opposing coaches. Meanwhile, Mangum continues to mature and unleash his downfield assault for the majority of the snaps as the Cougars continue to invest in their future, while 
limiting the physical damage on the most injury-prone player in Cougar sports history while still making use of him. If these roles and where they are applied could be defined and understood by players, team, and fans, there isn't any reason why both talented quarterbacks couldn't help BYU pick up victories in 2016. Situational Taysom for the New Orleans Saints has been an unmitigated success. And ultimately, I feel good about this take But it does have one pretty big flaw. (laughs) Tanner Mangum did not turn out to be Drew Brees. Not at all. (sighs) You kind of need QB1 to be the kind of person to keep Taysom on the bench. And ultimately, it played out that Tanner Mangum wasn't that guy either. So, kudos. Taysom Hill should have been the starter. I was wrong on that one. Okay. And he ends up, based on his unbelievable, robust potential, even, uh, think about this, think about how how high that potential is, even unfulfilled potential Taysom is the best quarterback of the decade. Amazing. Even, Even with his terrible troubles in the red zone, still the best quarterback of the decade. And not on potential, on reality. Still probably ended up putting in the the best stretch of play. Uh, And and he did it again in this like really unique way that we've kind of never really seen at BYU football ever before. uh, In a way where he needed to be singularly great. And if a team could take him away, then we were going to lose. Ultimately, it led to only winning eight games in a year with Taysom Hill. Never got past the eight-game part. He had four season-ending injuries. He only got to play in one bowl game. <laughs> okay. Uh, and, and you know, the Cougars were left to scramble in those four other seasons and try to find somewhere else to go. It took us four games to kind of recover in 2014 when we needed Christian Stewart to come on. Uh, and then... It took two or three games with Tanner Mangum to get going in 2015. And then, uh, again, we had to go to Tanner Mangum in 2016. And he struggled in the bowl game against Wyoming. And, of course, when he came in as a backup and got injured, it it led us to head back into Riley Nelson, James Larkland. So um, all of those injuries kind of put the Cougars on their heels uh, to different to different degrees uh, and the Cougars had to scramble and ultimately recovered and did well. And honestly, the recovery time was sort of this accountability thing that had to take place that where everybody else on the team needed to kind of step up and, and do more. And I, I, and so as I've said, I've always wondered what would have happened with Taysom Hill if there would have been a way to sort of balance his his singular, unbelievable talent, athleticism. It's clearly a fantastic... I mean, with the Saints, like, he's a football player. I'm not sure... I guess this is my point. I'm not sure he's a... Like, was ever going to be a fantastic quarterback. I the, Maybe the passing was never 
it, it never did come along. Maybe it could have if he never got hurt and then had to spend time rehabbing instead of working on pass. Who knows, right? The passing never ne- never came along. But uh, what a fantastic football player and physical football player and and his style of play was punishing not only to opponents but definitely to to Taysom himself and so um I wonder what would have happened if if there would have been a way to kind of merge his desire and his style of play to kind of dominate the football and, and find a way to get everybody in a spot where where the ball was getting shared while also allowing Taysom to kind of do his thing. It would have been really interesting. I, I think the Cougars could have done some real special things, but never came to be. And that has to be the story of Taysom Hill. So there you go. The quarterback of the 2010s. Okay, that'll do it for this episode of CougarCast. Thank you very much for listening. We will be back with the 2010s All-Decade Defense. We'll be discussing all of the positions and who goes where and who belongs. Pretty good defensive decade, have to say. Have to say. It'll be be fun to take a look at that. So, uh, decent. Decent, yeah. In terms of the individuals, if you put them all together, wow. So we'll we'll get into that next time, and uh, we'll also do a lightning round. Things like best offensive performance, best defensive performance, worst offensive performance, <laughs> worst defensive play, um, and uh, we'll 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 go worst loss, best loss, and we'll wrap up kind of our look at the decade of BYU football on the next one with a lightning round at the end of all the possessional reviews. So be on the lookout for that. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it. Tell somebody about it. Have them email me at cougarcast at gmail.com and tell me how wrong I am. That's fine. Happy to ha- happy to have that. <laughs> I don't think I am. But anyway, uh, nobody thinks they're wrong until they are. And it becomes abundantly clear. <laughs> anyway, uh, again, appreciate you listening to the show. Hopefully you enjoyed this. Hopefully you kind of slowly worked your way through it and gave some thought to it. Love to hear from you. Cougarcast at gmail.com. And again, if you dig the show, please go get a review. Five stars. Five stars on uh, whatever podcast service you like to use. And uh, again, the bigger thing is is just tell a friend. Tell a friend if if uh, they're a BYU football fan, I think I think there's a place that if they're super duper intense, <laughs> hardcore fan, I think they'll have a good time with me. So uh, share that along. Uh, thanks. Go Cougars as always, and uh, hope you're enjoying the holidays.